Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 42 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing this week? Good. I don't have anything to say because I'm not doing much at the moment. However, we're not speaking of those things. <laughs> so I'm excited to get into the episode, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to avoid um, self-isolation discussion, but it is a bit like that. I was saying to, uh, I was saying to my wife when we were finishing off the script, I said, um, you have to. I know. I look. Generally, I do struggle with a happy thought. Anyway, but I said, to, I said, Dames, throw a happy thought at me because um, one day has just been rolling into another at the moment. I'm yeah. struggling, <laughs> struggling to get that mental separation. But uh, no, I come up with one, so I think we're all good. Yeah, that's good. We do have some more Patreon supporters this week, though, Chloe. We do. Thank you and welcome to Louise Burden, Claire Colden, Katie Did Rose, Deb Scott. Ethan Sturgeon and Ryan Watts. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. And thank you to uh, everyone who continues to support us on Patreon. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. And a quick content warning for this case today. It contains some very graphic descriptions, derogatory and racist commentary, and also for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this episode contains names, descriptions and discussion of deceased persons, which might cause distress and sadness in some cases, particularly to relatives. So we encourage all of our listeners to exercise self-care if continuing to listen to this episode. Today we're talking about a true monster, an absolutely sadistic and sickening murderer and potentially a serial killer if you're inclined to believe later confessions. And we had some great feedback on the Wollongong two-part episode, Chloe, and as we mentioned, a number of comments on the sickening nature of the crimes and comparisons to Catherine Knight as well. So, Today, unfortunately, we're continuing that trend with a crime scene that rivals both of those in its brutality. So that's your heads up, guys. This one is graphic, and this guy we're talking about is one that you won't forget anytime soon. And to start this tale, we're heading up to Darwin in our country's famous top end, back to the year 1983. The city of Darwin is the hub of the top end in Australia. 
It's the capital city of the Northern Territory and the biggest city in the region with around 150,000 inhabitants. It's really the gateway to Australia for many of our neighbouring countries to the north, such as Indonesia, East Timor and Papua New Guinea. In the late 1800s, Darwin was originally named Palmerston, but it was renamed to Darwin in 1911. Palmerston still exists as a suburb, I believe. The city has been practically decimated and rebuilt from the ground up three times due to cyclones in 1897, 1937 and 1974, the last of which was the infamous Cyclone Tracy. In 1937, it was also bombed by the Japanese during World War II, so that would make it the fourth time it was practically re-established. Alongside its bustling mining and tourism sectors, Darwin unfortunately has a less than perfect history when it comes to alcohol abuse and related violent crime. In 2009, there were 6,000 assaults, 350 in which broken jaws and noses were reported, which apparently was more than anywhere else in the world. Darwin, and the whole top end in general really, has a very tropical climate with two distinctive seasons, the wet and the dry. The wet rolls around in late November and it's around this time you'll get your dazzling tropical storms, crackling chain lightning, rolling thunder, heavy rains and cyclones. Back in 1983 to 1984, Darwin and the top end experienced its most active cyclone season ever recorded officially starting in November and going through till the end of April in 84. And although Darwin had somewhat rebuilt since the devastating cyclone Tracy some 10 years earlier, in late November of 1983, there'd be a different kind of cyclone tearing its way through Darwin, a murderous cyclone in human form. Detective Sergeant Les Chapman, who we'll call by his nickname Chappie as we go along, and his partner, Detective Sergeant Dennis Hart, arrived at the Lamaru Lodge in Darwin in the morning of Saturday the 25th of November 1983. Another big Darwin night behind them, the local uniform police had called the detectives down to Mitchell Street due to the shocking crime scene they'd stumbled across. Adjacent to the lodge, in a flower bed, lay the deceased body of who appeared to be a young indigenous woman. And I say it appeared because at first, due to how brutally beaten she was, it was difficult to make out anything distinguishing, let alone her ancestry or identity. The young woman's dress was pulled up over her head, leaving her basically naked. Mud was smeared across her entire back, buttocks and legs, and her head was heavily bloodstained. Spatter from the attack had gone up the nearby wall of the lodge, approximately one metre high. Her torn underwear was down around her left ankle and her bra around her right arm. This poor woman had suffered a truly horrific death. She'd been punched, kicked and slashed for an extended period of time before her death. A pathologist couldn't identify one single injury that had killed her. It was a cumulative mix of the entire assault but he noted 28 external injuries, and notably, no defensive injuries to her hands or elsewhere. 
And most disturbingly of all, if what's happened to this young woman so far wasn't horrible enough, she'd also been mutilated with a broken glass bottle. Her nipples had been cut off and her right eyeball had been cut out and thrown into the grass about four metres away from her body. Detectives Chapman and Hart would identify the woman as 29-year-old Gloria Pinden of Darwin. And sadly, Chloe, we don't really have any information to share about Gloria. It's just not out there. And we generally like to discuss as much as we can about the victims of these terrible crimes, but sometimes, for whatever reason, that information just isn't available. And that was the case this time. But needless to say, right, this was an absolutely gruesome crime scene, rivalling that of those we heard about in Wollongong the past two weeks. A shocking sight for detectives Chapman and Hart to have to inspect and subsequently investigate. So while the immediate crime scene was obviously forensically inspected best they could back in 1983 anyway, Chappie and Hart got to investigating the surrounding area canvassing and chatting with folks in the lodge and other areas nearby for any leads or clues. And pretty quickly, they'd stumbled across a really solid lead. And this was in a bin nearby. They found a blood-soaked cowboy shirt, a long-sleeve white number, spattered with what in all likelihood was Gloria Pinden's blood. Chappie thought, this will be a piece of cake. We're after a ringer, a blow-in, who's come into town for the weekend He'll have dirty jeans with no shirt or a very clean shirt. The detectives and other officers got to work scouring Darwin looking for anyone fitting this description. Chappie was feeling the effects of a night on the plonk himself, having put away a gutful the evening before. But he had work to do, and he wasn't going to waste any time feeling sorry for himself back at the station over a cup of coffee before getting to it. Time was of the essence to catch this clean shirt, dirty jeaned ringer from out of town. Chappie and Hart sauntered down to the Smith Street Mall, where they bumped into a fella who looked similarly worse for wear from his previous night. Pulling him up, Chappie asked what he'd been up to the night before. The Vic Hotel, the bloke replied. You didn't see a cowboy up there with a white shirt on, did you? Chappie questioned. The man nodded. Yeah, there was one up there actually. He was knocking back jugs of rum. Jugs of rum, Chappie and Hart thought, before they trundled up to the Vic Hotel themselves for a look-see. They walked into the bar, the place reeking of stale booze and sweat, the floorboards creaking underfoot, and lo and behold, pulled up on a pew at the counter, was a picture-perfect ringer with filthy mud-cake jeans and a matching or unmatching, however you want to look at it, clean shirt. Chappie sat down beside the young bloke and had a friendly chat with him. Seedy as he was, he kept his game face on. The young bloke said he had been at the pub last night and simply had come back this morning to get his shoes. He'd lost them during the night somehow. Andy Albury was this young lad's name, Chappie discovered, and he was a butcher at the Bachelor Abattoir. He'd gotten into town just two nights ago. Are they the clothes you had on when you arrived? Chappie asked. Yeah, said Albury. You sure you didn't have a different coloured shirt on? Aubrey thought for a moment and then recalled he had actually worn a different shirt upon arrival, a white silk cowboy shirt. Chappie and Hart, slightly doe-eyed but still sharp enough, couldn't believe the silver platter this young blow-in was handing himself over on. The 22-year-old Aubrey accompanied the pair down to the station. On the walk, Chappie noticed Aubrey had a dried spot of blood behind his ear. When they got back and sat down for a chat in the interview room, Aubrey promptly opened up to detectives. I grabbed this gin, 
took her over into the lot and killed her, Aubrey said to Chappie and Hart. I started to kick her and hit her, and then I got a beer bottle and started to cut her. Aubrey went on to say he kicked and hit her repeatedly as hard as he could, but he'd been sinking the aforementioned jugs of rum all night, so he kept staggering and falling over. The graphic details were certainly lining up, and I'm sure making the seasoned detectives' already dodgy stomachs churn at this early morning hour. Aubrey continued, describing the slashing of Gloria Pinden's body and how he put his finger into her eye socket, twisted down with the tip of his finger before giving it a jerk, and then he threw it away and took off, leaving her there dead in the flower bed. What was your reason for taking the eye out, Hart said. No reason, I just enjoyed the killing, Aubrey said. You enjoyed taking the eye out, the detective queried again. I didn't even think about it, Aubrey said. Detectives Chapman and Hart probed further, trying to find a reason behind why Andy Aubrey had done what he had. What did he intended to do upon meeting Gloria to begin with? Aubrey said, It's sort of hard to explain. I really didn't want to kill her. Like, when I'm out shooting it's alright, but when I knock off or finish for a while, I feel like killing again. The detectives questioned further on this point and Aubrey explained he regularly shot buffalo and horses for meat. He'd been out hunting as little as three weeks ago. But why kill this girl? Chappie asked. It doesn't worry me what I kill. They're all blood and guts inside. Aubrey went on to give police a reenactment at the crime scene the following day, further bolstering the validity and weight of his confession to them. Turned out he'd watched the police from about 50 metres away that morning as they arrived at the crime scene to inspect it. He'd even gone into the police station while they were at the crime scene to see if his wallet had been handed in. He'd lost it the night before along with his shoes, during or after this murder, while in a drunken stupor. So Aubrey had seen police at the scene and gone to the police station and then returned to the Vic Hotel where he'd left with Gloria before murdering her. So he's really exhibited that classic serial killer trait of inserting himself back into the crime and returning to the scene. After the reenactment, Chappie and Hart asked Aubrey if there's anything further he had to say about the matter. Aubrey said, I think I'd do it again. I get enjoyment out of it. Don't know why. Alright, when I'm out shooting I don't want to kill anyone. But when I knocked off shooting and went on holiday in September, I had to kill something. So we've got a whole lot to unpack here when it comes to the background and what shaped this murderous man in Andy Aubrey. In fact, if anything shaped him, that is, and he wasn't just born like that. But before we get to all of that, I wanted to share a quick tale that Chappie later told about his time in the interview room with Andy Aubrey. Chappie spent a number of hours, seven to be exact, in the interview room with Aubrey during his confession. This was a very small room, and Chappie had plied the killer with coffee and pies, the breakfast of champions, to keep him talking throughout. Chappie was very wary of the young man. While he was seemingly calm and opening up to him, one of the things Chappie noticed was the sheer size of Aubrey's feet, Ian Thorpe's size he'd later recall. Chappie became particularly wary when Aubrey started to swing those big feet in his direction. 
Chappie went to get some coffees for the trio at one point, and upon his return, Hart slid him a note that said, Don't leave me alone with this chap again. His partner, too, was clearly wary of Albury. The young lad was sending a chill up both of their spines. Maybe it was the feet, or the look in his eyes, perhaps. The way he didn't waver or or show any kind of nervousness. At one point towards the end of the interview, the detectives left the room to collate the transcripts before Chappie took them back in to give to Albury so he could review and sign them. As he did, within an instant, Albury pulled the biro on Chappie and thrust it at him, stopping about one centimetre away from the detective's eye. It happened that quickly, Chappie couldn't react. Albury smiled and said, Chappie, I like you, before putting the biro down. But... He only had to follow through, and he very well could have killed Chappie. Let's take a walk back to the 20th of November 1961, when Andy Albury was born, and try and sift through all of this. There's not a lot known about Albury's childhood specifically, not a chronological timeline of sorts, but we do know he came from a broken home, he loved his mother, but didn't know his father. He had an older brother, and they grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, 70 clicks southeast of Melbourne in Victoria. Their first stepfather was said to be a violent man who regularly dished out beatings to Albury. Albury would end up in the Northern Territory during his childhood, attending the Nightcliff Primary School, where he was written off as uncontrollable. He'd find himself back down in Victoria at the Turana Youth Detention Centre, a place I feel like we've mentioned at least once before, Chloe. It was regarded as a fairly harsh place. Dangerous and unhealthy were the words used in the article I read. When he got out of there at 17, around two years he spent there, Albury went on the move, living an itinerant lifestyle. He worked on a cattle station in Western Australia before moving to station and roadhouse work in Kununurra and Coobapedi in South Australia. And then he tried his hand as a donkey shooter. Didn't realise that was a thing, knew about roo shooting, but didn't realise we had an abundance of donkeys here, but anyway... And in 1981, at the age of 19, Albury joined the army. He'd be there for one year, essentially running around with an M60 machine gun and apparently dosed up with meds to keep him under control. This is all according to Albury, I should add. He was disciplined a number of times and even threatened to shoot one of his officers before the ADF had had enough and dishonourably discharged him on the 7th of December 1981. Again, Albury went on the move, travelling to Adelaide, Alice Springs and to northern Queensland before ending up in Darwin in November 1983. As we know, he murdered Gloria Pinden shortly thereafter. And that was the thing about Andy Albury. At 22, he'd already developed this disdain for Indigenous people and subscribed to the twisted ideologies of the Ku Klux Klan – Albury said he and his mates, assuming he had any and didn't make this part up entirely, would actually chase Indigenous kids when he was younger and beat them up with sticks. In addition to this, as if his behaviour wasn't already sickening enough, Albury professed a hatred for, in his words, Asians, wogs and homosexuals too. Later interviews Albury would have with a psychiatrist would shed further light on his motivations. He wasn't interested in sex, Where others might go out to look for a woman, Albury would go out looking for a fight. So to me, that's suggesting he's getting off on violence. And that's further supported, I think, when the psychiatrist queried Albury about some of the incisions on Gloria Pinden's body, suggesting they had some sexual aspects to them. 
Aubrey, who was generally unwavering and never nervous, apparently became quite uncomfortable and evasive around discussing this and simply dismissed the mutilations as accidental. Aubrey said he thought of killing people in the same way as squashing a cockroach, and he regularly had the feeling or urge, as he described before killing Gloria. He'd even had this urge as recent as a few days before this particular interview with the psychiatrist, saying that he had a razor blade on him. I don't know how he got that in prison, but uh, he had the urge and was planning to slice up one of the prison officers. But he decided against it because he wanted to go out and watch television. So whoever that prison officer was, just like Chappie, they were lucky to still be alive. And thankfully, television had intervened and convinced Aubrey otherwise. And who said John Burgess's Wheel of Fortune never saved anyone's life? Aubrey also described a fantasy he had where he essentially arrived in a random town, like he'd done in Darwin, and started killing people one by one, getting off on the terror of his fellow man as he tore through the place. He was diagnosed as a clear-cut psychopath with no remorse, who was a sadist and derived pleasure from killing. And he said if he was ever released he'd go right back to doing it again. And obviously, there's no mystery behind what Aubrey did and his conviction was imminent, basically an open and shut case. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the murder of Gloria Pinden. And in prison too, Aubrey continued on with his violent ways, essentially spending most of his time in isolation within the prison due to the violence he displayed towards other prisoners. He apparently attacked one with a cricket bat, And he said quite openly that he's just waiting for the right weapon to come along so he can kill another person. He also attacked convicted child molester John Michael Knox, put a garden hoe through Knox's head apparently. Aubrey's lobbied heavily to be transferred and spoken of throwing urine and feces at prison guards. He also sends Chappie routine Christmas cards each year, written in his own blood, of course, and signed off with the name Bigfoot in some sort of attempt at sick humour, I guess. He inflicted damage and inspired fear in some of the most hardened criminals in the Northern Territory, and to this day, Chappie reflects, he's the only killer that he's put behind bars in his 29-year policing career who sends a shiver up his spine. Chappie said once to Albury, if we ever go to war here... I'll come and get you out and you'll be in front of me the whole time because he wouldn't trust Aubrey behind him with that kill-crazy look in his eyes. Luckily for Chappie, Andy Aubrey liked him. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. But, as always with these kinds of offenders, Chloe, we have to ask ourselves the question, what else have they done? Was it really at the age of 22 that Andy Albury committed his first murder? Was there an escalation that could be followed, or had he been active for some time before this? The aforementioned psychiatrist surmised that Albury wasn't doing what he did for notoriety, and while that might be true, I think there's a reasonable case for saying he said many things thereafter for notoriety. He's confessed to a number of murders. Some reports say 14, so 13 in addition. And much of what he's claimed has been disproven. We're not going to run over every single case that Albury has been loosely linked to, uh, just those that commonly come up and have somewhat tangible links. Albury claimed that he was 15 when he first committed murder, And he said in this instance, it was the murder of a boy one year younger than him that he disposed of, burying this kid under a boat shed somewhere along the Mornington Peninsula. He further claimed to have hacked up a victim while working as a fisherman in South Australia in the late 70s. Aubrey said, I cut him in half and all his entrails fell out and I cut off his head and stuffed it up his torso. Aubrey further claimed to have been involved in some of the family murders, a case we covered last year. Again, there was no real proof connecting Aubrey to any murders like this. They may have even disproven this. And to me, that killing he's describing kind of sounds like one of the family murders and something from the film Hannibal, which we'll talk more about later, but Aubrey was a fan of that movie character, so it kind of reeks of bullshit, this confession, like he's read it in the paper, watched a movie in recent times, and concocted his own half-baked version. Another couple of his claims were that he poisoned three Indigenous people with spiked alcohol, which killed them, and he subsequently dumped them in the Todd River in Alice Springs in 1981. Again, there was no proof of this occurring. In 1982, however, there was some evidence to support Aubrey's confession to murdering 52-year-old Donald Beals. Beals, a pensioner, was sleeping on a quiet riverbed when Aubrey allegedly stomped him to death. Chappie later commented that there was enough evidence in this case to put Aubrey up for the charge, but it wasn't strong enough likely to get a conviction, so it was abandoned. While Chappie thought this one was solid, he didn't necessarily believe all of Aubrey's claims for the other 13 murders, asserting that he was probably big noting. Then we have the 1982 disappearance of Tony Jones. Anthony Tony Jones was a 20-year-old young man from Perth, He was backpacking around Australia in 1982 when he disappeared. His last contact with his family and girlfriend was on the 3rd of November that year when he called them from a phone booth in Rossley, near Townsville. Tony planned to hitchhike from Rossley down to Mount Isa, where he was going to meet up with his brother Tim. But Tony never made it to meet Tim, 
and this was the last confirmed sighting of him, and there was no further trace of him after this. I happen to know a little bit about Tony's case, just from reading missing person stuff online, Chloe, as you know, that's quite a passion of mine, but Andy Albrey, through his association with the Mount Isa region and the time frame, has been thrown into the mix as a suspect in this case. Pretty loosely, in reality, I don't think he had anything to do with Tony's disappearance, but it came up during research, so we thought we'd point it out. We'll likely look at Tony's case on its own episode one day soon. But there remains one glaring crime that Aubrey had the strongest link to, and that's the September 1983 murder of Patricia Carlton. So the link to Tony's disappearance largely comes from the fact that he was heading to Mount Isa, and we know that Aubrey had spent time there right before coming to Darwin and murdering Gloria Pinden. But about seven weeks before Aubrey murdered Gloria, Another young Indigenous woman was murdered in Mount Isa in very similar circumstances. Patricia Carlton was found mortally injured in a hotel car park around 5am on the 1st of October 1983. She passed away in hospital later that morning. Patricia's husband, Calvin Condren, was arrested, tried and convicted of her murder after he made a confession to police that he'd killed her. At trial, however, Condren backflipped, saying the confession had been coerced and the police officers had bashed him until he admitted to killing his wife. They kept at me, accusing me and threatening to lock me away in a cell. I was under pressure, shaking with fear and very frightened, Condren later said. Eventually, I signed the confession just to stop the pressure. Condren was given a life sentence, the prosecution largely relying on his confession for the conviction. But one glaring fact overlooked during the investigation actually provided Kelvin Condren with the most solid alibi one could have. He was arrested for public drunkenness on the night of September 30th and was put in the police watch house for the night at 6pm that evening. Kelvin's wife was last seen by witnesses an hour and a half later at 7.30pm. It'd take nearly seven years for this fact to come out and for Condren's conviction to be overturned. Bolstering the original police case was a coerced witness statement which claimed the female, I believe her name was Louise Brown from memory, uh, she had seen Condren hitting his wife with a metal bar. She protested giving this at the time but again was allegedly told by the police that she'd be in trouble if she didn't sign it. Condren's case actually had to get escalated by then Queensland Attorney General Dean Wells as Condren had exhausted his appeals by this time. A retrial was ordered, however, charges were ultimately dropped. Calvin Condren was released and awarded $400,000 compensation for the wrongful imprisonment. That is equivalent to just over 800000 in today's dollars, factoring inflation. And although Patricia Carlton's case remains open to this day, there is some pretty solid evidence suggesting Andy Albury may be the perpetrator. Four weeks after Condrum was arrested for his wife's murder, in a prison cell some 1,300 kilometres away, Andy Albury told five police officers and his psychiatrist that he'd killed another Indigenous woman in Mount Isa in late September. It was later confirmed that Albury had indeed left Mount Isa on a Greyhound bus at 8.30pm, the evening of Patricia's murder. But when he was interviewed about this, Albury confessed to nothing. In fact, he said nothing at all to Detective Sergeant Geoffrey Barton. Maybe he didn't like Barton as he did Chappie. 
Aubrey was put on the stand at Condren's trial and questioned about what he'd told police and the psychiatrist prior to his formal interview, but he recanted his admission to being involved in the killing. Fast forward seven years and an affidavit signed by Aubrey was the straw that broke the camel's back and squashed any chance of the prosecutors for the state retrying Kelvin Condren, ultimately leading to his release. The affidavit Aubrey signed read in part that he found, and these are his words, found a black sheila, took her to a vacant lot and killed her on the previously mentioned date. Charges were not pressed against Aubrey, however, as his mental state has been something of a contentious point over the years. Alongside being a psychopath, other diagnoses have suggested that Aubrey has schizophrenia. He's also suggested himself that he had metal plates inserted into his head at birth and that these plates attracted magnets in the sky that told him to commit certain acts, including burning down his prison cell at one point. He also said that Dawes singer Jim Morrison and fictional detective Don Beach from TV series The Bill ordered him to commit some of the aforementioned violent acts whilst in prison. Aubrey's been called the Territory's own Hannibal Lecter, which seems like everyone's favourite go-to when describing a killer, but very rarely does that comparison actually line up. But apparently he's requested to watch Silence of the Lambs once in jail, so that seems to have come from that and stuck. And as I said earlier, he's probably watched the sequel Hannibal 2, as one of his confessions seemed to align with the scene from that film. In reality, Aubrey was nothing like the fictional Lecter. He wasn't intelligent or intellectual, he wasn't a professor, he didn't aid law enforcement in catching another serial murderer, and as far as we know, he didn't eat anybody. We also didn't see him wear an officer's skin on his face when he escaped from prison, as Lecter did at the end of that film. Andy Albury and indeed Catherine Knight, who's often called our female Hannibal Lecter, neither of them ate anyone. Although Catherine was in the process of preparing her victim, they were both dumb as dog shit and share nothing in common with the fictional character portrayed by Anthony Hopkins, other than the fact they murdered someone. But anyhow, none of that changes the fact that Albury was a gruesome, sadistic murderer, and the latter stuff about his mental state is probably why he's not been tried for any other murders. Whether or not he's got those mental issues or not is another question. There was some suggestion he'd put a bit of that on really just to entertain himself, to stop himself going crazy with boredom. In reality, he'll never be released from prison. He's not going anywhere and he's got nothing else to do other than keep himself entertained, so that's very possible. Finishing off with some words from Aubrey himself now, which he said in a letter to Chief Justice Brian Martin, I have no wish to die. I am unstoppable. I love my work. I do not understand what the meaning of the word kindness is. It's never been shown to me, so why the fuck should I show it? This is not some sort of weird attempt at justification for killing. I do what I do by choice or urge. I will kill again. It's what I do for an occupation. And that, Chloe, is the case of Andy Albury. Your thoughts? What a sick individual. Uh, Beyond the senseless killing, it makes me so angry that certain killers use these made-up reasons as to why they kill or that, you know, they join a particular hate group. Like, the killing is bad enough. I don't know why you need to pile on with more hate in such an awful situation. Aubrey seemed to coast along on the loose premise that he was a racist. We've seen things like that before with homophobia as well, which, you know, he might have been a racist, but I don't think that was the cause of him being a killer. He wanted to kill, that's it. 
and the arrest in this case was so easy. He was interviewed and charged over one murder. This surprised me. You almost expect someone like this, who is capable of these things, to be on the police radar for a while and to finally be caught. Saying that it's lucky doesn't seem right because people still lost their lives in a despicable way, but that didn't play out like that in other cases. And that's not really here nor there, but it played on my mind, maybe because of the what-ifs. And I guess the only other thing I have to say is that I'm really sorry for his victims, particularly Gloria Pinden, who shouldn't have died, obviously. I hope her family and loved ones are doing okay. That's pretty much it for me. You, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'll just echo that sentiment there about uh, Gloria Pinden, Patricia Carlton too. I mean, obviously, Calvin Condren lost his wife and a, and a huge chunk of his life there for something he didn't do. So I think Albury is pretty good for that one. Um, I'm not sure about any others, though. Like, I know he, he likes to sort of uh, seemingly paint himself as this serial killer, uh, but I just reckon he was too dumb. Like honestly, to get caught, like you said, so easily. You know, disposing of a what? Like who? Uh, a white cowboy shirt that was stained in blood in a nearby bin, and then he returns to the scene the following morning. I mean, he's just. He seems like the opposite of a of a Hannibal Lecter. So, <laughs> um, yeah, as we sort of covered. Don't really love that comparison. Um, I think, like you said, it seems to be the go-to that people go to, though. But um, I also want to mention, and we'll post this on our social media too, but, you know, there's not many pictures, but there's one main picture of Andy Albury, and he's sort of got these white flares, and he's wearing this T-shirt under his jacket that's it's like got the painted tuxedo sort of lapel. It looks really cheap, and he's just got this crazed look in his eyes, and He's just a real doe-eyed, bit of a scary-looking dude, but, um, yes, definitely worth a look to get a bit of a, a picture of him, I think. So we'll put that up on our Instagram and in our Facebook group. But, look, I don't really have too much more to add uh, other than what you said, Chloe. Uh, one sick individual, and I'm just glad he's locked away and we'll never have to hopefully see the likes of someone like him ever again. Yeah, let's hope. Well, um, since you teased your happy thought at the start, um, you can start. What is it? I did, yeah. And I was, uh, I'd kind of forgotten about this, but when I um, asked my wife, I said, oh, you know, one day's been kind of rolling rolling into another. What should I do for my happy thought? And she goes, well, mention the podcast you've been listening to. That's one good thing. I mean, I've been, having been at home, I've probably put away a few more podcasts. But um, I might be a little bit late to the bandwagon because I believe this podcast won best comedy podcast at the Aussie Podcast Awards last year, but it's um, Tony Martin's Sizzletown, which I absolutely love Tony Martin. He's just got my my sense of humour. I've listened to him since I was really young when him and uh, Mick Malloy did Martin Malloy show, and this is in that same sort of vein. You know, it's a very um, – it's his style of humour. So if anyone knows, knows him and has seen him on – you know, he's been on, on TV quite a bit and uh, he's, he's done quite a lot of stuff, but very funny guy. It's a it's a great show. Obviously, it was very popular, but easy to listen to, nice for a bit of a break from the true crime. So um, if you haven't listened to it, check out Sizzletown. Uh, yeah, definitely worth a listen. So what's, uh, what's yours for this week, Chloe? Um, so mine is what I think is probably the best news anyone's going to hear this year. And I'm saying that with the assumption that everyone who listens to our podcast has to be a fan of Law and Order SVU. I think it's <laughs> just goes with the territory. Um, it's one of my all time favorites as 
a true crime loving anxious person. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the good news is that there's going to be an SVU spin-off with Stabler. So it's about his next gig. So the guy who plays Stabler is going to be in it as the main character and I guess like the boss of a new crime unit. Um, I'm so excited for it. I have no other details. I don't know <laughs> when it's coming out or if it's even been filmed. I just know it's been confirmed and I'm holding on to that with everything I have at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> All I think of when I hear that is, have you seen that meme with the guy that plays Stabler where he's like leaning up against the post really relaxed? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that meme? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just think of that picture and seeing it like that. <laughs> There's a um, video of Kermit the Frog dancing, this weird puppet version, and I, I'll do this for usual, but no one else can see it, where he's kind of like waving his hands around like this and to the theme song of SVU, and whenever it comes on, I kind of do the dance while I'm sitting down. So that <laughs> is kind of <laughs> what I'm really excited for, more dancing to the theme song. <laughs> So comforting. Oh, good. <laughs> Do you know what the spin-off's called yet or that's to be announced? Yeah, I don't know. No, I didn't get that far. I honestly just skimmed the article and have been thinking about sharing this with everyone on the podcast that I'm assuming cares since like Wednesday when I read it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. That's good to hear. Um, and if you want to get in touch, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime, and you can search us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. So next week on the main feed, we're actually going to put up an old Patreon episode we did on the Kawaii Serial Killer. That's not going to be a regular thing, as we've said before, uh, but at this time, you know, everyone's home a bit more. We wanted to try and keep everyone entertained as much as possible, and I think our patrons will be on board with that. We have a brand new Blue Label Patreon episode for all of our current Patreon supporters coming out next week, um, so we'll be recording that, and it'll be discussing the murders of Leo Press and Trevor Park which we mentioned during the Wollongong episode and it'll also debut our Murder Lounge segment, Chloe, where we chat about some Australian and general crime news. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, that should be good. Um, I'm looking forward to that and um, trademark rights to my husband for the um, (laughs) creative name for that one. (laughs) Yeah, I like the premise. I'm still not sold on the name, but we'll give it a shot. I think it's going to be fun chatting about it anyway. It should be good. Well, Look forward to talking to everyone then and stay safe, everybody. Take care. Bye. In 2009, there were 6,000 assaults, 350 of which ended up in broken drawers. And, broken drawers. Just everyone getting their fucking tall boys out and smashing them. <laughs> <laughs>
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.